fellow Antarctic enthusiasts, it's Matt again. This week, episode 6, talking about Bellingshausen. Just Bellingshausen. Because the variety of spellings and combinations and potential pronunciation mishaps inherent in his first names are just too much to contemplate. While most of us lucky enough to land a job in Antarctica think we're pretty badass for dealing with cold conditions in isolation, there are many nations in the Northern Hemisphere in which entire communities live, work, raise children and go to the movies in conditions far harsher than those found on the Antarctic coast in the summer work season. Okay, so if you're living at the Pole, things are pretty hard to contest. You're badass. And even the folks in Fort St John, Canada, will acknowledge that. But the existence of such high-latitude communities in the north, and the entire culture of the Inuit nations, give the lie to Cook's prediction that the southern continent, if it existed at all, would prove to be useless to the interests of those who paid his way. Russia, with furriers at work in the Arctic, enslaving the Aleut people to catch seals and otters, perceived the opportunities offered by a southern continent in the high latitudes very differently to the English, and in 1819, Tsar Alexander I initiated expeditions to both ends of the earth. The Arctic exploration would seek the Northwest Passage, long hypothesised alternate route between the Atlantic and the Pacific offering Russia a seaborne option for transport of goods between Siberia and St. Petersburg, precluding lengthy sea transits to and from the southern latitudes, or the arduous overland journey that was otherwise necessary. The southern expedition would seek opportunities to establish ports in southern latitudes to enhance Russia's capacity to trade using its own ships, instead of relying on foreign logistics solutions. With much of the low-hanging port fruit already claimed by British, French, Spanish and Dutch interests, islands in the sub-Antarctic, and perhaps the fabled Terra Australis Incognita itself, would serve. With independence movements throughout South America threatening Spanish power in the far south, and with English ambitions in the region loudly announced by the colonisation of New South Wales, there was also a desire to increase Russian knowledge of the Straits of Magellan, to facilitate homegrown maritime trading in the looming power vacuum and likely tussle over control of the waters that made transit from one ocean to another possible prior to the completion of the Panama Canal and long before the Northwest Passage became readily navigable due to climate change, as appears to be on the cards as this series goes to press. Responsibility for the Southern Expedition felt the long-time admirer of James Cook, Bellingshausen. Bellingshausen was given only six weeks and two, let's face it, crappy ships, the Vostok and the Murney, to be getting on with in an expedition expected to last at least two years. Being hard case and likely thinking, what would James Cook do? Bellingshausen got on with the task, but with ships made of untreated pine and lined in one case with thin copper sheathing and in the other with tarred canvas, even a role model of the metal of the big Captain JC, RN, might have been hard-pressed to inspire confidence in the outing. The two German naturalists enticed to join the expedition, when no Russian naval staffer could be pressed into the role, piked out, failing to join the expedition when it reached Copenhagen, and despite his best efforts at finding replacements in England, even with the help of Sir Joseph Banks, 
Bellingshausen sailed south with the extra duties of most of the necessary scientific observations falling his way. Perhaps he sulked and had regular hissy fits, but if he did lose his rag over his situation, the histrionics went unrecorded, and I like to think that he was all stoic and hard-as-nails Russian sea dog about it. Reaching South Georgia, Bellingshausen found the embayments awash with sealers, rapidly depleting the fur seal population and about to enter the economic throes of ecological collapse. Sailing on to examine Cook's sandwich land, the expedition found a chain of islands instead of the northernmost extension of a southern continent Cook had placed some, though not much, hope in. A landing party on the largest mass, which they named Zavadovsky, was repulsed by sulphurous odours they put down to the penguin guano with which the slopes of the island were lavishly supplied. More likely, this was volcanic vents, which would also account for the ground warmth they experienced during their climb. Sailing further south, the ships encountered icebergs and brash ice. A heavy fog obscured their vision to the extent all available hands were set to leaning over the gunnels to listen for impending doom. According to Bellingshausen, nothing is more terrifying than the unseen crash of swell against the unseen flanks of unseen icebergs. I get chills just thinking about it. But as was previously noted, the man was hard case, and they pressed on. The ships crossed the Antarctic Circle on the 26th of January 1820. On the 27th, they would have sighted the coast of the continent, but for the fact that it was snowing heavily. Unlike many mariners before and after him who mistook icebergs for land, Bellingshausen refused to accept that the glaciers he spotted on February the 17th were not icebergs perhaps from an expectation the southern continent would appear as South Georgia and the Sandwich Islands, with rocky mountains capped with ice. Such mountains were sighted shortly after, as were terns. Too small to be way out there on their own, these birds indicated to the observant Russians that land lay nearby. Running low on wood with which to fuel their stoves, and unwilling to begin cannibalising equipment to keep the fires burning, the ships turned north, where they encountered further dangers in the form of huge southern ocean swells and violent storms. In one instance, the wind shredded their sails. These were replaced with the spares, which were then shredded. Sailors' hammocks were then sent aloft to provide enough control to allow the vessel to be kept to the wind. It was in this reduced state that the cry, Ice ahead! sent the already beset crew into paroxysms of horror. Unable to do much about it, they watched the ice approach until with moments to spare. It was heaved forward of them by a large wave and the objects passed by one another without contact. Unscathed, unstoved and unsunk, though still largely unable to manoeuvre until the sails could be sufficiently patched and hoisted so as to allow effective control to be regained. After nine days, the storm blew itself out and a month later, the two ships limped into Port Jackson, the city we now know as Sydney. In November, the ships set south again, dealing with southern ocean gales and icebergs to reach Macquarie Island. Surprised to find the island covered in lush vegetation, the Russians were disappointed to find no fur seals, their former abundance having drawn the attention of New South Welsh sealers. The sealers they did encounter were engaged in rendering oil from blubber of elephant seals, a less lucrative commodity, but as the animals occurred in abundance on the island, and were easy to chase down on land, it was still worth the effort of killing them and boiling their flesh in the tripods. 
Bellingshausen's records note the last known live observations of the Macquarie Island ground parrot, which was thought to have gone extinct shortly after his visit. Bellingshausen also noted the impact feral animals were having on both native organisms and on the sealers themselves. At various times, goats, horses, cows, sheep, dogs, cats, rats, rabbits, mice and weckers had been introduced. And while most of these had been removed by the 1980s, efforts to remove weckers and cats ran between 1987 and 2000, and efforts to control rabbits, rats and mice are expected to continue until at least 2015. Digression time. I once heard a story from a Department of Conservation staff member in New Zealand who claimed to have been part of a rat clearance project on the Campbell Islands. The method employed was to bury a 44-gallon drum in the ground and lay a bait over the top of it at the end of a stick. Rats that fell into the drum, receiving no food, would turn to cannibalism. When, after a few weeks, one super rat, glossy fit and with a taste for rat flesh, was left in the drum, it would be neutered by rubber band and then released, allegedly going on to wreak havoc on the remaining trap-savvy rat population. If any listener has written material that can corroborate this story, I would be grateful to hear about it on the blog. Further rat-based digressions lie ahead in the series. Remind me to tell you about Supermouse, the rat, the subaquatic Scotsman and the ecstasy tablet. After trading with the sealers and taking aboard a quantity of Macquarie Island cabbage, a local fern, as an anti-score buttock, the Vostok and the Murney headed south. Icebergs, waves, icebergs, waves, icebergs, waves. They crossed the circle on the 24th of December. On the 21st of January, they reached 69 degrees, 53 minutes south, the furthest south they would achieve, and sighted land. It would be a century before anyone set foot on the volcanic shore they'd observed, but Alexander the One Land was indeed land, and only pedants deny this as a sighting of the continent on account of Alexander the One Land being separated from the mainland by a narrow but 200 nautical mile long channel. The guy saw the continent, but didn't realise it, sailed within sight of the continent, but couldn't see it, and then spotted a 200 mile long island which, if it weren't there, would have allowed him to spot the continent lying close behind it. Damn you, give the hard-as-nails Russian sea doggies biscuit! With crappy ships, crappy weather, no scientists and only six weeks prep, the boy done good. Unable to reach the land, but in good heart having seen it and toasted the health of the Tsar after doing so, the expedition headed northeast, aiming for the South Shetland Islands, Bellingshausen having heard of their discovery while refitting the ships in Sydney. The expedition had made a close circumnavigation of the continent, citing continental features and adding much to the knowledge of Antarctic wildlife in spite of the dearth of biologists. Magnetic observations from the voyage were passed on to the German magnetician Carl Friedrich Gauss to help him establish a model of the magnetic fields at work in the Earth. They arrived at Deception Bay on the 5th of February 1821 and there encountered eight American and English sealing vessels, among them the 21-year-old American sealer, Nathaniel Palmer. Palmer's biographer, Edmund Fanning, who wasn't there, recounts Palmer claiming to have sighted land further south than Bellingshausen 
and that on examining the logbooks, the Russian made a flowery speech about having been bettered by the younger man and naming the sighted land Parmaland in his honour. This could be an exaggeration, or a whole cloth fabrication. We can't know. But the name stuck, either way, with the Antarctic Peninsula being labelled Parmaland on American-generated charts to this day. While Bellingshausen might have felt some relief that the sighting marked on Palmer's chart was two degrees longitude distance from his own sightings, it is possible Palmer's experience of the area was more extensive than he let on. To this day, commercial exploitation of marine resources relies as much on knowledge as on technology, and any advantage in the former is jealously guarded. It is possible, and I think it likely, that many sightings of the Antarctic continent predated Bellingshausen's efforts, but the credit must go to him, because he was the one who told other people about it and provided verifiable evidence supporting his claims. The difference between being the first to do something, being the first to claim to have done something, and being the first to both claim to have done something and provide compelling evidence to support that claim might seem trivial, but as much of that which claims regarding territory hangs on is exactly that trite, the differences warrant mention. If I am the first to climb Mount Everest, but I don't tell anyone about it, no one will give me credit for it. If I claim I am the first to climb Mount Everest, people might give me credit for it, but others might say, oh yeah, you're the one making the positive claim, so you're the one who holds the burden of evidence. Demonstrate that you were the first to climb Mount Everest. If I then produce photographs of myself making progress past recognisable landmarks on the way to the summit, perhaps also some photographs of the view from the summit, featuring landmarks which could be compared against maps and survey data, and bring back some merchandise from the concession stand at the summit, then there's a good chance my claim will be taken seriously, and that's largely what counts in matters of primacy regarding being the first person to go to X. Not actually being the first, or being the first to make the claim of being the first, but being the first to be able to demonstrate that you were the first, sufficient that the consensus opinion becomes that you were the first. Bellingshausen sailed on to Rio de Janeiro in early May and then on to Kronstadt in August, short three crew who died during the two-year voyage. His account of the voyage was published in 1831, but with no translation into English until 1945. His contribution to international understanding of Antarctica is missing from most Victorian and early 20th century accounts I can get my hands on and understand. Bellingshausen's logbooks were destroyed during the Russian Revolution, making a close examination of the credibility of his claims impossible. But the reports and surviving correspondence make it clear that the Antarctic coast was sighted at least as early as the 28th of January, 1820, and that the Russians did recognise it as being continental, making them the first to set eyes on Antarctica, but only beating out the British whaler, William Smith, by a matter of days. But you'll have to listen to further episodes to hear more about him, because the encounter between the Russians and the Americans was too good a segue to ignore. This won't be the last time strict chronology will be ignored in the series, and while I am CDO enough not to like it, there will be a lot of things happening at once in several eras of this history, and tempting as it might be to try to account the timing accurately, I am plumping for the option of considering the events affecting individual expeditions in isolation, as the expeditions were forced to operate at the time. This will, of course, fall apart when the number of expeditions and their ability to communicate and collaborate increases, but it's working for my mental space right now. As Bellingshausen sailed north, Nathaniel Palmer carried on the business of catching fur seals. This week I'd like to give a nod to Mike Duncan.
This podcast is a product of having looked for an Antarctic history podcast and not found one, in the same way that Mike Duncan's The History of Rome podcast was the podcast that he was looking for, but which no one had yet made. It's well-researched, it's engaging, and it's funny, and I recommend it to anyone with any interest in history. Mike Duncan's new series on revolutions is underway, and I'm enjoying listening to it every bit as much as I did his last series. Take care and enjoy your coffee.